Amen. You go ahead and be seated. Well, I hope that y'all are doing well. Uh, my name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. If you are new, welcome. In the event that you did not hear or catch John, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 6 through 16 this afternoon. And while you open and load your Bibles, i got one quick update for you, or maybe like an announcement. If you visit our website, we have this resource page. And on that resource page, we have these things called discipleship guides. And those discipleship guides tend to be uh, connected directly to the series that we're in. Those discipleship guides are free 99. You can go ahead and download them. And it's everything from family worship and discipleship to individual study, uh, in addition to stuff for community groups. Uh, we want to hook you up with as much content as we can uh, so that you would grow as disciples who know and live like Jesus. To all that, let's go ahead and, and dig into our time. Let me begin by praying, and then we'll look at our, our text this afternoon. Join me in prayer. Father, as we begin our time, let us just acknowledge your goodness. You are good, and you do good. Therefore, would you meet us where we are this afternoon? As we consider your word, would you, by your spirit, not only bring understanding, but worship to our hearts? God, may your word this afternoon be sweeter than the taste of honey. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, in his book, Soul Boom, Rain Wilson, who also plays Dwight from The Office, writes that the fastest growing religion in the United States is the religion of the nuns. When it comes to the religion of the nuns, these are individuals who would select None of the above in surveys that ask, what religious affiliation are you? Are you Catholic? Are you Christian? And so on. And they would say, none of the above. Right? Hence the phrase, the nuns. Nuns as in nada, not nuns as in hermanas. Right? So now that we're clear, the nuns. Most of these surveys would agree that these individuals would say that they are spiritual but not religious. Most of these individuals uh, grew up in the church or they were raised with some sort of religious beliefs, but since have walked away as a result of institutional failure, immoral behavior, controversies surrounding the church. If you're familiar with the Pew Research Center, they would confirm this phenomenon of the nuns. They would even go to the extent in saying, sometimes these individuals, uh, when it comes to uh, matters of spirituality, what they do is they try to connect with something bigger than themselves, with other people, with nature, or their own, quote, true self. You don't have to go very far to encounter those who would embrace this expression of the spiritual but not religious. These would be individuals that would say that they are on their own spiritual path and journey. For instance, the great pop prophet Justin Timberlake said, I think the term for me would be more spiritual than religious. In addition to that, the great Pink, the artist known as Pink, she says, I'm a very spiritual person. It's the baby blanket of my life, but I don't believe in organized religion. In our text today, the Apostle Paul flips this around by saying, actually, what the Bible would teach is that you are very religious, 
but not spiritual. See, to be religious is to worship something or someone, even if it's yourself. Religious individuals are on the hunt for divine realities, the meaning of life, inner peace. Uh, They would even subscribe to religious activity. The problem is that you have no way of knowing the truth apart from the Spirit of God. When it comes to this, it's not that we're trying to say that Christians are spiritually superior. Rather, we ought to be spiritually prayerful to see people come to know and live like Jesus so that they would experience true spirituality. Paul, in this section, would argue that the true spiritual person knows God specifically because of the Spirit of God. And so we're going to consider three contrasts this afternoon. This portion of chapter 2 is a continuation of our time from last week where Paul emphasizes the centrality of the cross. And in this section, his focus is on the necessity of the Holy Spirit. And so as we dig into this passage, Paul's assertion is clear. True spirituality is connected to the centrality of the cross. See, as Christians, we're not mythological, we are Christological. In this section, Paul will provide three contrasts between human wisdom and spiritual wisdom. You're going to hear those words a lot. It's going to sound a little repetitive, so I'm just giving you a heads up. But it's important to note that the Corinthian church, as I've mentioned in weeks past, they were a very spiritual church. They were a very gifted church, but they were also dividing over certain theological matters. If you're familiar with this letter at all, one of the greatest topics covered is on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's all found in chapters 12 and 14. What's interesting about this section in particular is that Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit more here in these 10 verses than in chapters 12 and 14 combined. Paul knows that they have theological questions and issues, but he's not addressing them right away because he needs to get them and us on the same page concerning the work of God through the Spirit of God. In other words, while the Spirit of God does hook us up with gifts, the fundamental work of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate our understanding of God to renew our minds, and to transform our hearts. The Spirit is the one who overcomes our rebellion toward God and guides us in drawing near to Him. So, now that we got that out of the way, and a little bit of uh, context, beginning with the first contrast, Paul writes that human wisdom is temporary while the wisdom of God is timeless. Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. When it comes to the word mature, this is actually an important word in this section. What he means by the mature is those who know and love God. That's what he means in this section. And the reason that's important is because oftentimes when we think about mature and we think about contrast, we're thinking, oh, these are the ones that get it. These are the ones that are growing in their faith. And then there are those who are immature, who are acting like kids and adolescents. 
In this section of Scripture, Paul uses the word mature simply to refer to those who know God. Why do I say that? Because next week in chapter 3, he uses the same word, mature, and there he's referring to their behavior. Here it's based on their identity. Next week it is, or in the next chapter, it's based on their behavior. And this is an important distinction because Paul intentionally uses this word. You see, the Corinthians are all about who's the best. They want to know who the spiritually elite are and whether or not they find themselves in that group. So when Paul says that we impart wisdom to the mature, the Corinthians would have heard that and been like, who are you talking about? Are you talking about A team or B team? The gold team or the green team? Right? They want to know who the spiritually elite are. But Paul uses this word in order to level them all. If you know and love Jesus, you are of the mature. And that would be a good uh, encouragement for you. If you know and love Jesus, you would be considered of the mature. Welcome. We made it, guys. All right. <clears throat> In other words, it means that we see the cross rightly. And so, moving on, Paul goes on to identify the rulers of this age. This is a reference to everything from kingdoms to political and powerful figures, religious leaders, to schools of thought and influence. Paul's point here is that all of those leaders and movements and institutions one day will be forgotten. They will fade. Their contribution may be helpful, but ultimately it lacks eternal significance. Every age whether it's in the days of the Corinthians or in ours today, every age has a temporary wisdom. But in this section, Paul's argument is that we do not, Christians do not have a temporary wisdom, a temporary message. Our message is an unchanging message. We don't have an out-of-date gospel. We don't move on from the centrality of the cross. Rather, we grow in our understanding of it. This wisdom, as Paul continues, he goes on to say in verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. Literally, the, 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 the expression for this is wisdom in a mystery. In other words, God's unfolding plan of redemption. At one point, it was concealed because of unexpected aspects, but now God's wisdom has been revealed with the coming of Christ. Now, you and I get to see the whole picture of redemption. We get to look at all of Scripture in light of God entering into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. We get to understand the Old Testament and how it points us to the cross. And as we come to the New Testament, how it reflects on the work of the cross. As we read the Old Testament, we're reminded, oh, the sacrificial system anticipates the ultimate sacrifice. The high priests anticipate the great high priest. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament prepares us for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This mystery at one point was hidden, but has now unfolded in the coming of Christ. Paul addresses in this section that the rulers of the age didn't grasp that. And so he uses the centrality of the cross 
as an example to show the difference between human wisdom and spiritual wisdom. Verse 8. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is saying, at the cross, two wisdoms collided. That of Rome and that of the Redeemer. On one hand, Rome's wisdom was immersed in military power, influence, and pride. Yet, on the other hand, the Redeemer's wisdom was in humility and sacrifice. See, on Friday, it looked like Rome had won, but on Sunday, Christ stepped out of the tomb, vindicated and victorious. Paul is saying, wisdom of this age will fade, but we will be most glorified because of him. To provide further clarity, he quotes from Isaiah, what no, eyes, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The context of that quote is talking about a future tense. Paul uses it in a present tense manner. His point is that because of God's work for us in Christ, we get the benefits of God's plan of salvation right now. And what I love about that Isaiah passage is that it's a beautiful description of a Christian. Prepared for those who love him. We love him because he loved us first. In this short verse or in this short passage, six through, we're basically looking six through nine, what we learn is human wisdom is bound by time. Right? The rise and fall of kingdoms and movements while God's wisdom is timeless. Paul writes, God decreed before the ages of glory, for our glory. See, for Paul, the cross, or not even for Paul, here's the, the plan of redemption. The cross was always the plan. It was always plan A. There is not and will never be a plan B. Human wisdom is bound by time. God's wisdom is timeless. Human wisdom is bound by limits. Trends come and go. They fade, they're fickle, they're unreliable, but God's wisdom is limitless. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that human wisdom or intellect isn't helpful. That's not what I'm saying. There's much common grace that human wisdom and insight has given us, from education to the arts to innovation and technology, We've accomplished a great many things, from landing on the moon, if you believe it happened, (laughs) anyway, um, to uh, tacos and tortas, pancakes, man, like that's amazing stuff, that's common grace. Charles Spurgeon says there's no, there's hardship in everything except in eating pancakes. I'm not even kidding, he said that. But as great as human wisdom can achieve, as great many things as we can achieve and accomplish, human wisdom cannot understand the knowledge of God. Human wisdom cannot shed light on the kingdom of God. Pastor Tony Morita says it this way, we may live in the information age, but there's a kind of knowledge that you cannot get on the internet, saving knowledge that happens by the Spirit. 
The wisdom of God is timeless, not temporary. Next, Paul moves from the temporary and timeless to what we'll call discovery and revelation. This is found in verses 10 through 13. I should have set you up better on the last one, but now we're in verses 10 through 13. When you consider the previous section about the timeless and the temporary, a follow-up question could be something like, if God's wisdom is timeless, if it's incomprehensible, then how are there Christians? How can one actually come to know and understand God? Do Christians believe blindly and ignorantly? Are Christians uninformed or unintelligent? One philosopher rejected Christianity by saying, it's too weak. So then how can one come to understand God? Well, we can answer some of these questions by looking at some of the people in the text. For example, the Apostle Paul. If you're not familiar with Paul, he is like the Bruce Banner of the New Testament. And if you don't know who the Bruce Banner is, he is the Incredible Hulk, right? But in his human form, he has like seven PhDs. That is Paul, okay? In fact, in Philippians 3, he brags about, negatively, he brags about where he comes from. I don't know if this is on the screen, but listen up. He goes on to say, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, Paul opens up. This is Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4 through 7, if you got your Bibles. Anyway, and so Paul opens up by saying, if you want to brag about where you're from, who you know, and what your background is, and how much education you have, whatever it is you think you got, I have more. However intelligent you think you are, however cool your family is, let me tell you where I came from. And so he continues. If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Do you know who my family is? Do you know? I was raised within the people of God. I memorized books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books. This was literally my life, he continues. As to the law of Pharisee, not only was he a religious leader, he would say, man, I followed the law of God to a T. A persecutor of the church, to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, man, I held to the law of God so tightly, so well, that when these Christians started popping up, I killed them. It's pretty intense. But then he concludes, but whatever gain I had, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. When we consider the Corinthians, they were known for their scholarship. They were known for their philosophy. They were incredibly intelligent. But to know God is not a matter of intellect, but revelation. It is not a matter of intellect, But Revelation, consider verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Paul writes that the wisdom of God has been made known 
through the Spirit of God. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He is the one that illuminates our understanding, who makes the truth uh, uh, not only appeal to us, but makes it in a way to where we now understand it. And so in this section, Paul unpacks what the Holy Spirit does. He goes on to say that the Holy Spirit reveals the things of God. That's the truth of God and, and the revelation of Christ. That the Holy Spirit searches everything because he knows God and is God, continuing in verse 11. Or actually in verse, verse 10. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Later on in this section, he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the things of God. In this, Paul then compares that thinking to us. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Paul saying, no matter how well you know someone, you cannot know their thoughts. You can have educated guesses about what they're thinking, but you cannot truly know what they're thinking. Likewise, only God knows God's thoughts. So then, how are we going to understand God if we can't even understand another person? Paul's point is that we need the Spirit of God to know God. Once more, consider the second half of verse 11. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. This speaks to our inability, as a result of our sinfulness, to know God apart from the Spirit of God. In other words, there is this great distance between us and God because of our sin. Our self-centeredness is too deep. We need divine help in order to understand and know God. This also tells us that even those who don't know Jesus, they can be individuals who have information, but not transformation. This tells us that one could be well-informed, but not illuminated. And while there's much that we can accomplish in order to understand the things of God, we must have the Spirit of God. This is the fundamental difference between discovery and revelation. If you walked through our Doxa class over the last couple of years, you might remember this portion. Discovery and revelation. If you haven't, all right, here we go. Discovery teaches that truth is out there to be found. I can go hunt for the truth. I can search truth from within myself, my true self. I can go hunt for it. I can discover it through looking at it, through touching it, through feeling it, through smelling it, through intellect, through experience. The truth is out there for me to figure out. What's the problem with that? Have you ever been wrong? Revelation, however, teaches that the truth is revealed. It is imparted. It is from with, not from within you. That's the whole point of that divine help for us to know God. Truth is revealed to us. It's not something that we go out and discover. Paul concludes in verse 13, and we impart this in words, 
not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What I love about verse 13 is that it's a really good, if like his reference to Isaiah was a good description of what a Christian is, then this is a good description of what a Christian does. That when it comes to making disciples, when it comes to us discipling one another, we're going to impart spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, the scriptures to those who have the Holy Spirit in them. Have you ever been in community group? you ever been in a conversation with another believer and you're sharing some scripture, you're sharing what you're learning and it's clicking and you're going back and forth with one another? You can discern what you're saying. You're like, oh, I didn't know you learned that. And all of a sudden, you're able to keep following along. That's really encouraging, right? In addition to that, have you ever taken scripture or the gospel and shared it with a non-believer? And then they're looking at you with blank stares. What are you talking about? I remember being, uh, working with my friend Josh for the, at the city of McAllen, and we were sitting down at this one event one time, and he's sharing the gospel with me, and he passes me his Bible, and I remember it was Ephesians 6. Don't remember what else we were doing, I just remember that, it was Ephesians 6. And I remember reading it, and Josh said, what do you think? And I was so angry that I couldn't argue from it because I didn't understand it. Like, I could comprehend what was written down because I could read English, but I couldn't argue what it actually meant. And so I just gave him a blank stare. I don't know what this means. The thing here is, we're kind of turning it around as far as the way we approach one another. It's really encouraging to impart spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. But when it comes to those who don't know Jesus, the point of this is that we don't approach them with persuasion or primarily with persuasion or intellect. We approach them with prayer in hopes that they would come to know and live like Jesus. Once more, consider your story. Right? Someone shared the gospel with you and they stumbled over it and they probably misquoted something and not knowing where, uh, where certain things are in Scripture and you're just having blank stares and then one day, all of a sudden, the scales fall off and your understanding of who God is was embraced. I remember my friend Josh inviting me to, to, to the church and I remember telling him, I will go this one time if you just shut up. And he said, sold. And then Jesus saved me. So. <laughs> but that's the idea. Sometimes when we impart spiritual truths to the unspiritual, you're going to have blank stares. And then there are these spiritual truths that you impart to one another, and it's just clicking, and we're teaching one another, and we're discipling one another, and it's great. But the further encouragement here is that when we approach those who don't know Jesus, we're not approaching them primarily with intellect, persuasion, or arguments. We're approaching them with prayer. That's exactly your experience if you know Jesus. God makes himself known through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Finally, we come to the third contrast. This is in verses 14 to 16. The natural person and the spiritual person. Paul writes in verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is the one who does not know God, the one who does not have the spirit of God, whereas the spiritual person does. That's the contrast. 
And so Paul focuses once more on the condition of the natural person, saying that they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Not only do they consider them folly, in other words, they can't understand them, they can't embrace them, they can't exactly interact with them. That doesn't mean that they can't understand portions of Scripture, but to know who God is, they're far from Him. Additionally, Paul is saying that they reject the things of God because they don't want to know God on God's terms. That was you and I. Again, this is not a matter of intellect, but a revelation. You can be informed, but not transformed. You can be skilled and not saved. You can be baptized and unbelieving. I don't know if you've ever watched this movie called Fury. The setting takes place in World War II. Brad Pitt is in it. Uh, it's about a bunch of tankers. And uh, there's this one character. I can't pronounce his real name. So anyway, there's this one character. His name is Bible. And Bible is sitting outside one of the tanks, and they receive a new recruit. His name is Norman. And so Norman shows up, and the first thing Bible asks him is, are you a praying man? And Norman responds by saying, yeah, I go to church. And then Bible almost immediately asks again, are you saved? And Norman responds by saying, I'm baptized. And then Bible shoots back, that's not what I asked you. You can be baptized and unbelieving. You can be informed, but not transformed. Skilled, but not saved. And that's the, po that's the point Paul is making. Once more, the spiritual person, this is the contrast, the spiritual person, he goes on to say, judges all things. Now, verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. We can take that text and like totally mess it up, right? Like, you could see some Christians who are going wild, embrace it, and say, see, only God can judge me, which is a really scary statement to make. But what Paul means is that the spiritual person is able to now grow in discernment. They will be misunderstood by the unnatural person, or excuse me, by the natural person. They're going to be misunderstood as they grow in discernment. And if you're wondering, well, what's discernment? Discernment is the ability to make the distinction between good and godly, not just right and wrong, but good and godly. And so what Paul is ultimately encouraging is that those who are, uh, those who are the spiritual persons, they're going to grow in their understanding of who God is. As they grow, the natural person will misunderstand them. And Paul qualifies this by quoting Isaiah one more time. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Meaning, for the Christian, the spiritual person, as it were, God's thoughts are no longer out of reach for you. They're no longer at a distance, but they are a delight. Because God has made himself known to you through the Spirit of God. So his thoughts are not out of reach. They're not at a distance, but they are a delight. Over the last couple of months, we've been walking a couple of individuals through a deacon candidacy process. One of the individuals in that process, <clears throat> at the beginning, we were reading a ton of scripture, and they were a little intimidated and a little nervous, 
because uh, they felt as though they weren't retaining a lot of Scripture, and so they kept on rereading Matthew over and over and over and over again. And at this one of our meetings, they go on to say, I've read Matthew five times, and I can't wrap my mind around certain things. What do you think is wrong? And I said, well, I don't know, but I've never heard somebody just reread Matthew five times over and over again. And so what that then gave them was encouragement, like, oh my gosh, yes, I just read this giant book of the Bible five times. And over the course of several months, they went from just reading Scripture over and over again to praying it out loud, to growing in their confidence, to growing in Christ-likeness, to encouraging one another in the deacon process. Why? Because they have the mind of Christ. They grew in their Christ-likeness as the Spirit of God made himself known to them, was continuing to fuel them. The spiritual person discerns the things of God because of the Spirit of God. Now, why does any of this matter? That was basically just like this Bible study, this is what it's saying. Kind of a sermon, I suppose. But why does this matter? Cool, now you know the difference between the spiritual person and the natural person. Well, I'm going to give you one main reason as to why this matters. All right, you ready? Got your pens? Here it is. It matters because Paul is writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to spiritual people, not natural This tells us that though God has made himself known to us, you and I can have a propensity and a tendency to believe that we are a part of the elite. Look at what we know and look at what they don't know. It is us versus them. Instead, knowing God because of the Spirit of God ought to humble us. We are not of the spiritually elite. We are of the humble. This means that we didn't figure it out because of our intellect, our might, our background, our willpower, your parents' faith, the church that you were raised in. No, 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 none of that. But because God made himself known to us through his spirit. The Holy Spirit himself is the one who has removed our opposition to the truth. You didn't figure it out. Doesn't matter where you grew up, your background, the church you came from, the tradition you came from, nada que ver. The centrality of the cross reminds us that, die, that God died in our place and for our sin, and through the Spirit of God, our hearts have been changed, transformed. So as we close, Christian, do you walk willfully in ignorance? Do you walk in pride? Do you think you're a Christian, but you're really not? See, many in the church are all about the gifts of the Spirit, but not many want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Can someone attest to the fruit of God in your work. See, passages like this are meant to humble us 
in order to give God glory for his work through Jesus, but also so that we would examine ourselves to see if we are really in the faith. I mean, think about it. Do you bank on knowing God because of your background? Do you bank on knowing God because of your religious history and activity? Do you bank on knowing God because of your intellect, because of what your parents showed you? Or do you bank on knowing God because of the Spirit of God in you? That's what matters. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Could have been anywhere else but here. But you're here. You cannot know the things of God apart from the Spirit of God, no matter how much and how hard you hunt. Therefore, consider the message of salvation, that God enters into human history, lives the life that you cannot live, dies a death in our place and for our sin. Is buried, resurrects on the third day, ascends into heaven, and imparts his wisdom on sinners like you and me. Not because we earned it or figured it out, but because of his grace. Surrender yourself by repenting of your sin and submitting to Jesus. Church, the spiritual person can only know God because of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare ourselves for the table, may we first lay it all out on the table. We conclude by thanking you for your goodness, demonstrated through Jesus' work for us and evidenced through the Spirit's work through us. Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our pride. We confess that we are excessively confident in our own sufficiency, trusting in our own wisdom, and overestimating our ability. In our ignorance of the truth, Lord, we deprive ourselves of your grace, of your sufficiency. And so right now, we acknowledge our desperate need of you. We recognize that this request is only made possible because of the Spirit's work in us. So not only do we praise you, but we're asking for help so that we are in constant need for you. By your Spirit, may we walk in grace today and as you carry us into the evening and the week ahead. 